I'm Dan Diamond, and this is Politico Pulse Check. Happy Fourth of July holiday. Congress is on recess now. The presidential campaign is heating up. There will be plenty of politics to keep us busy in the months ahead. So given the holiday, I wanted to try something a little different with this week's episode, to take a break from Beltway obsessions and feature snippets from two classic Pulse Check conversations that I think remain just as fresh. First, you'll hear an excerpt from my interview with healthcare venture capitalist Bijan Salhizadeh, one of the early episodes of Pulse Check, on how Bijan thinks about how to invest in healthcare and what happened when he got pitched to invest with Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. That was one of my all-time favorite interviews. Then later in this episode, you'll hear an excerpt from my interview with Gates Foundation CEO Sue Desmond Hellman about how the Gates Foundation approaches public health what Sue wishes more Americans knew about prevention. Another memorable conversation from a few years back. If you're a new listener to Pulse Check, it's a good chance to get acquainted or reacquainted with these episodes. And if you like what you hear, check the show notes. You'll find links to the full episodes with Bijan and Sue. We'll be back with a regular episode next week. And now here's my conversation with Bijan Salhizadeh. To set the scene, we were talking about upfront investments or seed investments when someone comes up with a new idea and needs money to fund it. The earlier stage you invest, the higher return, obviously, you're looking for, and usually the higher mortality rate in those companies. Yeah, what's, what's the death rate, essentially? I mean, of every 100 seed investments, how many actually pan out to be something more than? So the data on this is extremely murky because people don't like to report bad outcomes. It's, it's kind of like uh, doctors reporting their bad outcomes. There's, it's, it's not well reported. Um, I'd say overall in venture capital, so venture capital firms, and there are, is better data here, about 60% of investments made return less than the capital put in the businesses. Um, it's actually more like 50% in healthcare and more like 75% in tech. So it's, um, it's a pretty high mortality rate. It's, this is not for the faint of heart. I can imagine seed investments, 90% will fail to return capital. That, that's probably the metric. And where do you sit in the food chain? So at Navamed Capital, the firm that I founded with a couple of partners, we sit in more of the growth equity and small buyout world. So we're looking at businesses that are mature and profitable and looking at buying a, a control position greater than 51% of that company, typically from an owner-operator who's grown it either through some seed and angel capital or by bootstrapping it, which is the alternate to all this. You never raise any capital, and you just actually do it the good old-fashioned way by customers and getting profitable on your own sweat equity. And that's where we focus. And we focus solely on healthcare services, including pharmaceutical services, but providers um, and um, and low-tech medical products, kind of distribution type businesses. So if I'm a listener to this podcast and I've got a brilliant idea that I've been cooking up in my garage and I need startup money, you are not the guy to not, fetch. Not the one to call. Um, I'm always happy to hear from people, but the odds that we're going to invest in, in, in two guys or two gals in a garage in Palo Alto is zero. Once upon a time, I feel like you were one of those guys in the garage. You went to med school, then you you promptly, as soon as med school was over, went out to California and joined a tiny startup and then became a venture capitalist pretty quickly afterward. Would you recommend that path? Um, you know, it's. Uh, I think it was dumb luck. So it's hard to recommend a path that I didn't plan. Um, uh, it was, um, you know, I think getting into the investment business is very difficult. There are very few positions. And um, 
they typically aren't advertised. So it's it's just a matter of being in the right place at the right time when the investment firm or the or really the startup that is looking to hire you, depending on what where you're looking, is looking for the person of your background and skills. And so hard to recommend the path that I, I blindly lucked into thinking I was going to be a heart surgeon. Do you feel like the world needs more heart surgeons or needs more venture capitalists? Oh, definitely more skilled physicians. Um, uh, you know, and I, I think about it every day. You know, in fact, my mom probably thinks I'm operating right now. But, you know, I think about what um, what the alternate universe would have been like if I was in the hospital right now. I probably wouldn't be sitting here being interviewed by you. So, Or, or running to a board meeting after this. But I, exactly. I, you, you've had to settle for this hard life as a healthcare <laughs> investor. It, it's been 15 plus years since you graduated from med school. I'm, I'm just curious about this. Do some of your med school classmates who went on to be doctors call you up and say, we want we want to be you. We want this life. I hear from lots of folks I, I went to medical school with and, and a lot of my good friends who are practicing medicine today. I think the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, they look at what I do and it's so strange and foreign to them. And sometimes they pitch me ideas of things they want to start. And it's, I think it's, it, it, there's lots of things about being an investor that are um, from the outside seem very sexy um, and, and attractive. And lots of it actually is. It's a very charmed place to be to make decisions about investments, particularly when you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, where you sort of have often no business uh, judging a bus- an entrepreneur who's put their whole life into something. On the flip side, um, the, you know, I look at what they're doing and I say, boy, that bond with the patient, that ability to get close to someone in a moment of need and do something that helps them and their family is you can't replicate that in the business world. You just can't. It's a, it's a different unit of personal satisfaction. You, you just touched on something that has always fascinated me, this idea of kind of peak performance in a profession. And having listened to great podcast, uh, Tectonics, with David and Lisa, you did an interview with them a year and a half ago, recommend that to anyone who wants to hear more about the venture capital world. But one point you made that really stuck with me was there was a period in time when, as a venture capitalist, you were really optimistic at the beginning of your venture capital days. And then there was a period five years after, almost as a reaction, where you became very pessimistic. And it it made me wonder, just like young doctors probably aren't the best doctors until they've gotten to see a range of conditions and and do all kinds of different procedures and, and work with other kinds of patients, venture capitalists probably peak after a certain number of deals that they've either gone in on or, or passed on. So what is the like prime time for a healthcare investor to really make his or her mark? You know, it's a it's a it's a great question. I think it's probably after you've seen some failure modes. So, you know, as I as you know, I always think about you, you spend the first three to five years loving everything and the next five years hating everything that you see because you've seen how the things you loved can fail. And so um, I think the peak is sometime after you've seen some failure modes and you, and yet you haven't become cynical. I think that the hardest thing to be is an investor who's cynical um, about anything. There's lots of reasons to be cynical in healthcare. You know, entrenched forces. Nobody wants to make less income. There's a hundred reasons to be cynical about any, any deal you see, any investment opportunity you see. And I think the, the time for peak performance is to, to, you know, is to catch you as, a, as the individual investor in your period of life where you haven't become cynical yet. And that's typically, you've seen a few failure modes, but not too many. And by the way, if you've seen too many, you're probably not long for the investment world. So if you're a senior venture capital person and someone who's only been doing this five years is offering you recommendations, should that person basically be on probation until he or she has been around for eight years or 10 years? That's usually actually the way it works in terms of how you get promoted in these firms. And and the, one of the guys who was my mentor and trained me at my old firm said, you know, it takes 20 to $30 million to train a venture capitalist, which means I expect you're going to lose money before I know whether you're any good. 
Um, and so that there's, you know, there's something to be said right now. It's, um, and that I think is reality. You have to see some things fail. You have to have some successes as well. Otherwise you're, you're not going to be in that firm very long, but it, it, it is, it is very much true what you said. If it takes 20 or $30 million to train a venture capitalist, much like we were talking about companies that burn out and, and fail, how many of those venture capitalists end up repaying that initial investment? Obviously a great one can repay it at some huge multiple. Um, it, it follows a power law like everything else. And so, you know, um, the number of firms that, that return um, more than two times their capital to the investors that put money in that firm, which is a conglomeration of individuals who are making investments, is vanishingly few. Hmm. It might be 20 or 30% of all venture capital firms return just two times the capital they've been given. And by the way, that's considered quite good over the last decade. And so um, there are hundreds of people who start as young associates at venture capital firms, and there are um, dozens of people who end up at, out of that group as senior partners in those firms eight to 10 years later. I, I want to talk about some of your investment successes, but first we're going to talk about a time that maybe your pessimism was helpful. You alluded to Theranos earlier. You, you didn't invest in them. You didn't invest in Elizabeth Holmes, the, the CEO and founder, though you had the chance. Let's, let's go back. When was this? When did they first come to you or you went to them? So in the fall of 2006 or spring of 2007, uh, one of our associates um, had heard about the company, reached out, and I was the one because I was in the Menlo Park office on Sand Hill Road to take the meeting. Famous Sand Hill Road. Famous Sand Hill Road, you know. And I sat in a conference room about the size of the one, Dan, you and I are in today, and I got the pitch from Elizabeth Holmes. Um, and I, I remember was like, she, was she wearing a black turtleneck? No, no, this was before the black turtleneck era. And I remember, um, cause there was already a buzz about the company in Silicon Valley of this, something interesting going on here. And I remember, um, not understanding almost any part of the pitch. And I went back and looked at the slides just last night, you know, as I was thinking about us having this podcast, I had a copy of those slides and, and I still didn't understand what those slides were saying 10 years later. So, um, Look, what, what did the slides say? You know, they if, were. If you're allowed they to were, say, yeah, uh, they, they, we, we'd never signed a confidentiality agreement, but they were building a box, um, which is kind of the business model they've gone back to after they got rid of the idea of doing a lab, or were told they couldn't do that idea anymore due to the regulators. They're, they're, they're finger prick testing that they could take a drop of blood and do the testing. That's that's kind of out the door now. Yes, yeah, so and now they're just building the box to run the tests on, and, and the idea is they're going to sell those boxes to other labs, and and that was kind of where they started, and and I didn't understand why the world needed that box or how it was really all that different from many, many, many instruments that are made by many large lab companies. And so um, the thing that stands out to me about that meeting and the interactions with the company after were that unlike almost every other business I've ever looked at, they were unwilling or unable to answer two-level questions deep on anything I asked because they either claimed it was confidential or they claimed they weren't ready to talk about that publicly. And so... That ought to set off warning flags. So I say, look, Theranos has everything to do with Silicon Valley investment and also nothing to do with Silicon Valley investment. It has nothing to do with Silicon Valley invest investors investment because almost every one of us on Sand Hill Road and, and elsewhere looked at this investment, those of us who are healthcare investors, and passed. There are almost no healthcare investors that you would recognize who ended up putting in the hundreds of millions of dollars that they raised over time. So this ought not to be viewed as emblematic of the kinds of things healthcare investors in the Valley invested in. It has everything to do with the Valley because the Valley loves a story stock. This was the ultimate story stock. And, and in particular, healthcare loves a story stock. 
Healthcare is complicated. Blood testing is complicated. And we and I think there's a narrative that people like people like stories. Humans like stories and we like the story of a Svengali-like leader who takes a bunch of very complicated things and reduces them to something simple that's explainable um, and can promote those ideas and innovations really well. But I think there's an extremely thin line between um, being an appropriate promoter and being on the verge of being fraudulent in how you convey a story. And that line, most investments that healthcare investors invest in stay on the right side of that line. And occasionally, once in a decade, there are stories like this that where they, they cross the line over. And, and um, look, I think the other part of this was that there was a failure of due diligence. Uh, uh, due diligence is the work we do when we make an investment. And the, um, you know, I think the warning sign here is that they were, you know, one of the investors is suing them right now. And, and right, everyone is trying to get $100 million back. Exactly. Everyone thinks in these large investment rounds that the other guy or gal investing is doing the work to suss it out. And that's a very dangerous place to be in these large story stock type investments. So in some sense, it was entirely predictable um, that, that this was going to happen. And, you know, really credit to the Wall Street Journal and John Carreyrou for just some outstanding reporting to unearth this. This is the pioneering Wall Street Journal reporter who, interesting to me, the Wall Street Journal was where Theranos made its debut, this very splashy, like, op-ed uh, I can't remember the headline, but it was something like with a, with a drop of blood um, revolutionizing healthcare. And flash for two years later, it's the Wall Street Journal undoing this this company. Do you think if Kerry Roo hadn't come along and started asking his questions, that Theranos could still be operating in, in maybe this traditional Silicon Valley way of maybe they're succeeding, maybe they're failing, they're very opaque, maybe they fail kind of slowly as opposed to this this crash. I think they would have failed slowly, but it might have taken years with the war chest of capital they had. And they had raised $800 million. Exactly. Yeah. And and look, um, in some ways, if you were a, a real astute reader of the message board forums on Reddit, maybe three or four years ago, there were phlebotomists, people who draw blood saying, I don't understand why this is changing anything. In fact, I don't think this is doable. Um, but most people don't read the message board forums for phlebotomists on Reddit. Um, and so this was not did, a widely... Did, did you at the time? I did. I did. And I tweeted about it. But, you know, my little tweets weren't going to matter in terms of what, what ultimately ended up happening. It took a really dedicated reporter like like uh, uh, the one at the Wall Street Journal to unearth this and then fight a really significant politically connect, connected machinery in that company to get that story out. Next, you're going to hear part of my conversation with Sue Desmond Hellman, head of the Gates Foundation. This was recorded in September 2017, as Republicans continue their push to repeal and replace the ACA. And I think her comments are just as valid now that the healthcare debate is shaping the presidential campaign. So uh, the Gates Foundation actually doesn't um, uh, participate in the U.S. healthcare dialogue or debate. We, we only invest in health outside the U.S., um, but the U.S. healthcare debate and the U.S. healthcare system matters a lot to us um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, we're a U.S.-based philanthropy. Our our staff, our employees, our colleagues, our community in Seattle or or in our office in Washington D.C. live in America, um, and we're Americans. 
So we have a lot of public health experts at the Gates Foundation, and we know how much access to health care and a healthy population drives the economy, drives good things for America. So, of course, we're interested in the U.S. health care debate. And I have to say that the disappointing aspect for me of the U.S. health care debate is, and, and this is how we think about global health, two central tenets of any health care system are access and affordability. And I would love to hear more about access and affordability in the congressional and national debate on health care. So do you think the average American health care wonk is missing some key elements of either global health or what makes public health work because of this overall focus on the legislative battle? Essentially, from your perch, where you're kind of a step away from the fight that is gripping Washington, D.C., you think access affordability, those issues are are going overlooked. Are there other things that need to be on the front burner for legislators in Washington, D.C. who might be listening to this podcast? Yeah, I have to say that one, I've loved getting re-involved in global health uh, since coming uh, to the Gates Foundation about three years ago. And let me give you an example. In Ethiopia, um, Cassette, the Minister of Health, who was the prior Minister of Health, started focusing on maternal mortality. Uh, nobody around the world would argue with the fact that no woman should die in pregnancy or during childbirth. That's a, that's a no-brainer, frankly. But in order to provide the kind of services that women need in Ethiopia, he had to think about forming what, what they ended up having a, a health development army an army of volunteers who could help women understand how to have safe pregnancies and safe childbirth. That's a low-cost way to deliver services and get women to understand about having a birth, her birth in a facility to, to frankly save her life. It's uncommon in the U.S. that we think about a goal, maternal mortality, childhood mortality, um, uh, uh, having uh, the absence of obesity or diabetes. And we think about what's the most cost-effective, inclusive way to provide that service. I wish that legislators were more aware globally of the most productive Access and affordability is productivity. What's the most productive way for Americans to be healthy? That is a must-have conversation. If you're in Ministry of Health in Ethiopia, Nigeria, India, China, so there are many, many lessons that the U.S. healthcare system could take from the global dialogue. And and I wish our Congress, I wish actually our population were more demanding of access and affordability. What's what's one of those tactics right now that if you could get on a virtual soapbox and say this is what the U.S. healthcare system could implement and do tomorrow and make healthcare better? What would that be? If I had a soapbox, uh, um, preventive services. And you do. You're the head of the Gates Foundation. You have one of the biggest soapboxes <laughs> in the world when it comes to healthcare. Well, I'm talking to you. You're giving me a soapbox. So thank you for that. The so I'm a public health person. I I, I uh, have a master's in public health from UC Berkeley, and I'll be true to my school. It, it, it is inarguable that making accessible and either free or very very cheap preventive health services. So access to family planning, access to vaccines, access to services like colonoscopy that prevent colon cancer. It is very, very expensive to fix problems once they occur. 
and much more cost-effective and productive to provide for government to provide preventive services for all Americans, that would be my soapbox. Do we know that, though? I mean, there's been all this focus on prevention as part of the ACA of dealing with chronic disease in America. Isn't there the counterargument that if you're preventing a serious illness and saving someone's life, that person may then need ongoing therapy, care, drugs, whatever it might be, and the total cost can be fairly significant compared to an early uh, early death, which is obviously not preferable. But if you're talking about cost for society, can't prevention be extremely costly too? So I, I think that there are two different dialogues. One is keeping someone alive, um, frankly, at, at some point when their quality of life is poor and they're, they're is a valid debate about end-of-life care. And, and I think that's a valid debate that needs to include patients themselves on what their desires would be. There's a whole part of the medical curriculum that I'm very positive about, about having the right kind of end-of-life discussion so that we don't spend 80% of the funds on the last several months of life. I think that's a valid discussion. That is fundamentally different than making sure that all women have access to family planning when she wants it, that all children have safe and effective vaccines that can prevent illnesses, um, that all people have access to the best information about nutrition, diet, exercise, so that we promote wellness. Promoting wellness for me is inarguable. Um, End-of-life care is a valid debate, particularly in an aging population. Let's, let's talk about what the Gates Foundation has prioritized. You've alluded to some of this already, childhood mortality, maternal mortality, and then there's confronting some of the world's worst diseases, TB, malaria, HIV, AIDS. What is the biggest challenge, global disease-wise, that the Gates Foundation still feels like is, is not solvable in the next year's ahead. So so if we had a top five, I would give you a top five that are extremely important. And we look at global burden of disease. We look at why people die and what causes the greatest number of deaths and disability in the world. So HIV AIDS remains a terrible problem. And we, the world needs an AIDS vaccine. Malaria, tuberculosis, diarrheal diseases, and pneumonia are exceptionally important to the Gates Foundation. In addition, we believe that the world is on the brink of eradicating only the second disease ever. So smallpox was eradicated in the late 70s, and the second disease that we think can be eradicated is polio. And so while the burden of polio, because we're at the end game, is small, the world will be better off if we get rid of polio. Do you have a big party planned at Gates Foundation headquarters when polio is eradicated? The world is entitled to have a big party when polio is eradicated. It, it, now, for, for that to be established, you have to go three years without a case of wild polio. So it, it will be the passage of time. But I can tell you that, that you want to be at that party. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Bijan Salahizadeh and Sue Desmond-Hellman for their time when we first recorded the show. And my thanks always to Mikaela Rodriguez, who's produced so many episodes of Pulse Check. We wish her well on her next stop at Roll Call. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com by email. 
can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player next week. Happy holidays.